Welcome to Podshipath. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, I talk with ecologist and author Carl Safina, who sees the durability of human dignity and survival of the natural world as depending on each other. We can't preserve the wild unless we preserve human dignity, and we can't conserve human dignity while continuing to degrade nature. Safina was born to parents whose Brooklyn apartment was filled with singing canaries. He began raising homing pigeons at the age of seven and spent his teen years training hawks and owls and immersed in fishing, bird banding, and camping. Safina's seabird studies earned him a Rutgers University PhD, after which he helped to lead campaigns to ban high seas drift net fishing, overhaul U.S. fisheries law, and reduce albatross and sea turtle drownings on commercial fishing lines. Along the way, Carl widened his interests from what is at stake in the natural world to who is at stake among the non-human beings who share this astonishing planet. Dr. Safina is the Endowed Professor for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University and is the founding president of the nonprofit Safina Center. Safina's books include Song for the Blue Ocean, The View from Lazy Point, A Natural Year in an Unnatural World, A Sea in Flames, The Deepwater Horizon Oil Blowout. He also hosted a 10-part PBS series, Saving the Oceans, which can be viewed at pbs.org. His most recent book is Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. 20 years ago, I worked on a campaign to stop Mitsubishi from building a salt factory in Laguna San Ignacio, the last pristine birthing and breeding ground for the Pacific Grey Whales, which I'll have to do a podcast on at some point. Anyway... One of the producers of a film about that special place called Larry Colpold said, if there's one book I should read this year, it's Carl Safina's Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, of which the New York Review of Books, Tim Flannery's wrote, Beyond Words is gloriously written. Along with Darwin's origin and Richard Dawkins' selfish gene, Beyond Words has the potential to change our relationship with the natural world. So it's this book, Beyond Words, that I talked to Carl about today. Carl lives on Long Island with his wife, Patricia, and their dogs and feathered friends. I start by asking Carl why humans see ourselves as so distinct from and better than the rest of the natural world. It took about 200,000 years to get to that place. And I think that agriculture had a lot to do with it. And the Abrahamic tradition had a lot to do with it. I've been reading a lot for a book I'm working on about native uh, and indigenous views about nature. And they do not have ideas that we are superior to all other beings or that we're the best animal or that we're the only one that really matters. That view, although it's very, very widespread and it's part of our own culture, is among cultures and among uh, and over human history, I would say, is a minority view. Many other cultures have other animals in high esteem and 
pre-agricultural cultures, hunting and gathering cultures, see a very, very different world. In their creation stories, humans were brought into this world by animals. They see in other animals much greater powers than humans, psychic abilities that are on par with humans, you know, that they, we watch them, but they're watching us. The idea that we're better than other animals is, uh, is a particularly Western, European, and Abrahamic view, mainly. And it feels, as you start this book, you're, you're really looking at, which I love, kind of evidence. Let's find the facts for how animals think and feel and emote and grieve and, and behave, rather than the folk tales about what animals could or couldn't do, or our own kind of, as you're describing it, kind of Western views of our superiority. And I love it when you talk to Cynthia Moss in Kenya about how we should be comparing elephants to ourselves. What was her reaction, Carl? Yes, she said that she didn't think it was an interesting question. She's interested in elephants as elephants, and she wants to learn about elephants, not to learn about humans by watching elephants. Uh, of course, the reality is you you can't really help but learn about humans by watching elephants because the more you know about elephants, the more you realize that they're more like us than we were led to believe. So there's a lot of perspective setting that happens. And you talk about kind of early animal behavioral science and this kind of anthropomorphic trap, namely, if we assume human values towards animals, that's kind of patronizing and wrongheaded. But if we assume the opposite, namely that they don't have any characteristics of communicational feeling, we're also going down the wrong path. Like, how did we get stuck in that place? When the people who wanted to make animal behavior a science got started, which was mostly in the 40s and 50s, they said, okay, we're going to forget about all of the folk tales about how foxes are clever and ants are industrious and grasshoppers are lazy. And we're just going to watch what animals do and we're going to describe that. But following that, Students of animal behavior were told that the idea that the question of what's going on in their mind is not a scientific question because we cannot see into their minds. But there are three good ways to see into the minds of other animals. One is we can consider evolution and the similarities between their nervous systems and our nervous systems. We can watch the logic of their behaviors. Uh, an animal that on a cold day comes out and lies in the sunshine is an animal is capable of feeling cold. And on a hot day, they, they lie in the shade. That means they can feel hot or they can feel cold. They can feel uncomfortable. An animal that runs away from danger is feeling fear. These things are very logical and they make sense. You don't see an animal run away from food. You know, they do things that are logical. We can actually now look into the brains of other species as well as our own. You know, we, we literally can wire them up. We can put them in MRIs. We, we can do, we know a lot about brains, brain chemistry, neurobiology compared to what we knew 70 years ago. Plus, when they got started in the 40s and 50s, there were almost no studies of wild animals in their wild and natural free living lives. And now there are many thousands. So there's an awful, awful lot to bring to bear on the question. 
you start in Beyond Words with focusing on elephants. There's a sense of this connection that we've somehow worked to eliminate. It, it feels like in most of our sense of progress, we want to remove ourselves from the rest of the natural world. It's a great catastrophe, really, for life on the planet that humans have removed ourselves farther and farther from the source of life on the planet. Not, not only free living animals in wild places, but you know, many humans know nothing about where their food comes from or the metals that are in our vehicles and appliances, the, the lumber that is in our homes. We just don't know where anything comes from anymore. For many thousands of years, people understood where everything they used came from. They, they saw it, they got it, they used it. And this estrangement from the world is, it's a real impoverishment for not just our understanding intellectually, but emotionally for our, our human spirit, I think. You talk about in the book, in the section about wolves and the domesticated version, dogs, and somehow that we've been ourselves domesticated into a place where we've numbed ourselves and insulated ourselves from the natural world. I think we should probably say what domestication is. Domestication doesn't mean in captivity. It, it means that there's a form that is different from the wild ancestral form. So a, a wolf in captivity is still a wolf. It's, it's not a domesticated, the domesticated wolf is a dog. But there are a whole bunch of things that go along with domestication often a smaller brain size, which even humans show compared to our Neanderthal ancestors, floppy ears. There are essentially no mammals in the wild with floppy ears. And one of the main things that domestication does is, is to kind of put the creature in a state of arrested development where they, they tend to be more juvenile and less adult, and they're more playful, they get along better, with everybody, they're not as interested in striking out on their own. And if, if you watch wolves and then you watch dogs, and we live with three dogs, you, you get the very strong sense that dogs are like young wolves, that they never really get to grow up and they never really want to go out on their own. And humans show some of these same kinds of traits compared to the way that uh, chimpanzee develops, for instance, we tend to retain more of our juvenile characteristics. And this seems to be a process of self-domestication. To a large extent, we have numbed and insulated and isolated ourselves from the rest of the world. I really need to have the ability to go outside and, and be in a natural place that has animals and plants and water that works and things that function it's a beautiful and enriching existence compared to just just being basically around one species, just humans in, in only artificial places, eating only food that was somehow packaged for us. I think there's a lot lost there for many people. And it's, it saddens me. I mean, it's, as you're saying it, it's, just like chronically depressing. Uh, and it brings up this concept that you describe kind of in, in the quest for determining 
how animals think and feel, you ascribe to humanity kind of this belief that that one of the distinguishing aspects of being human is empathy, and yet elephants and maybe other animals have this deep sense of empathy. It feels almost kind of revolutionary to say that elephants can feel empathy, but as you describe the journey in the book, it's so clear that they do. Well, first of all, we know ele elephants live in a very tightly emotionally bonded families, and they know the other families around them, some of whom they just like better and they're f friends with, others they don't hang around that much with. So they know who they are, they know who they're with, they know where they are and what they're doing. And there are an, enough stories about elephants helping one another or helping people who are injured or avoiding injuring people. But many animals have empathy to a certain degree and, you know, don't press their advantages when they could. I feel like your book was one of the first to kind of reframe how we look at the stories of animals through a perspective that isn't singularly us. This was a concept I had for writing the book, was to let these other animals make their own case for existence instead of talking to people who are conservation champions or having people describe in great detail what their day doing research is like. I, I wanted to get from them, from, from the animals themselves, a sense of what life is like. As you spend all this time with researchers and the animals in the field, like how did your own sense of our place on the planet evolve? The reason that I'm into this to begin with is that my sense of our place in the world is that we, we are one species among many on the only known planet with life, a, a miraculous planet that has many mysteries and imponderables. If you simply try to understand how one cell works, it's utterly mind-boggling. And I love being in wild places with free-living creatures. And I, and I love being with the people who study those animals. They tend to be my favorite kinds of people and certainly my favorite kinds of places. Yeah, that truly it is truly is an honor to spend time in those wild spaces. One of the things that struck me is that as our brains were developing, so were, in this context, the elephants. Like we co-evolved with them and we had many of the same inputs and experiences in our evolution and, and that we are built upon that same foundational framework. For most of human history, we were close neighbors with elephants and we evolved on the same planes, under the same sun, worried about the same dangers. And that's one of the reasons I think that we are capable, potentially, of understanding each other as well as we do. And we have a lot of neurotic, hardwired baggage that is actually kind of similar to threats. You talk about, um, for instance, which I love, you know, the one very discernible warning call that elephants have is around bees. They don't like to get stung. We don't like to get stung. When we hear all that buzzing, we run away. They run away. When they see a lion or a hyena, they're on alert. You know, they don't like those animals. They pose danger to them. 
I, I don't think it's very hard to understand what they are feeling and why they're perceiving it because it's pretty much exactly the same as our perception. Talking of our perception, it almost feels like there's a group of people who treat it almost like science fiction. Like this exists out there, but they're never going to see it in their lifetimes. The separation has grown so much between natural human and urban constructs that this almost feels like a world that hardly exists anymore. How do you view what we can do to to bridge that separation? Yeah, I think many people do feel that way. But the fact of the matter is that most people live in a place where there is still a lot of functionality to nature. There are wild birds, wild mammals, lots of native patches of forest. In my case, it's it's the coast. I've always lived here on the East Coast, not too far from salt water. When I go out seeking some contact with the natural world, I, I don't usually go too far. Somebody said to me a few years ago, very, very earnestly, we, we really want our kids to love nature. So next summer, we're taking them to Botswana. You know, these, these are Americans. Botswana is across the ocean in a different continent. And, and I said to her, well, maybe you should just buy a bird feeder first and show your kids the birds outside the kitchen window. I think the way that we get to know other species does not involve a huge trip to some faraway place. There's a lot of it around us. But for many people, nature is something that exists in some place, like in a park or, or on television, even worse. There is still a lot of functioning nature all around us. If there wasn't, we would, we would probably be dead. But yes, a lot of it has changed a lot. A, a lot of it has diminished in many ways, in many places. But if you want to get acquainted, there's some access and some thread that will reach you just about anywhere. One of the things that you say is, uh, and the researchers are looking at wolves, is if there's any single animal that humans are most like, it's the wolf. Why, why is that, Carl? Well, wolves live in a nuclear family, like most humans do. A wolf pack, this word pack, really means a family. It's basically a mom and a dad, occasionally another adult relative, and then their offspring of several different ages. And when the offspring become young adults into the middle of their adolescence, they leave their families and they seek their own stake in in the world and in life. This is exactly how people tend to live. And so the domesticated wolves that we call dogs know intuitively how to live with us and we know intuitively how to live with them because their deep history is to live in a nuclear family. That's the main reason we don't have our much closer relatives, chimpanzees living in our homes, is they don't live in nuclear families. They fight for dominance. There are uh, a few winners and a lot of others around the periphery. Uh, you know, it, that doesn't do trying to fit that into a human family. But a, a wolf can fit really easily into a human family in the form of a dog. As most people know by now, the only ancestors of dogs are wolves. They are domesticated wolves.
Are you optimistic that we as a species can learn quickly enough that we are part of this intricate web of life? Or are we on a course to, to fail to recognize that at our own peril? Well, we are failing to recognize that. But big surprises are possible. History shows us that some things that we could not have foreseen suddenly change our life and our view of the world. COVID-19 was a very recent example of that. Nobody saw that coming one month before our world got totally turned upside down. One of the things that is happening in the world, although much too slowly, is that women are gaining more and more rights. And in countries where you see that women have full citizenship, which means they can own a business, have pretty open access to higher education, achieve positions of influence, can inherit property, where women have the dignity of full citizenship and and can make the array of choices that they can make, then they choose to have smaller families. You, you don't have to have a big discussion about saving the world or saving nature or elephants or anything else. The secret of rich people is that smaller families give you a bigger life. And if you look at the pattern of human population growth around the world, where women have dignity and choice and rights, the trajectory of population growth has flattened and is slightly falling. And that's done strictly voluntarily, strictly by choice. And that's crucial because we and the rest of life on earth will not be able to withstand a constantly expanding human population. There are three times as many people alive now as when I was born. The population of the world has tripled in my lifetime. And just trying to keep up with that and, and serve the needs and demands and desires has made it almost impossible to look around and remember what, what planet we're on, you know, quite, quite literally. So that's where I see the possibility of hope. Giving women what everybody wants, which is human dignity and choice, is the most tractable way of dealing with all of these huge problems that we have. And it's at the root of most of them. I was also just noticing in your book that the first and the, the most time you spend with researchers who, who look at the issues of family and connection and communication between elephants, Cynthia Moss and Joyce Poole and Daphne Sheldrake are all women. Well, you can add Jane Goodall and you can add a friend of mine, Patricia Wright, who's been studying lemurs in Madagascar. There mm. many of the great animal behavior researchers are are women. And that's been true since the beginning of that field in the early 60s. To me, it feels there's, there's a very political aspect of your book, which is once you understand that animals have these both cognitive abilities and emotions like empathy and grief, it's very difficult to fathom what we're doing to the natural world it removes what we kind of feel like, you know, in Genesis is described as our dominion over nature it has no moral or, or underpinning. Yeah, well, one of the reasons that a lot of people believe things about animals that are contrary to what you can see with your own eyes is that 
thinking that they don't know the difference between being joyful and being miserable or having a sense of well-being and suffering, that's our favorite story because it's, it's the greatest cop-out we can possibly construct for ourselves to thereby give ourselves permission to do a lot of the things that we do to them and not worry about it in any moral or ethical way. One of the biggest reasons it's hard to let that go because if you let that go, if you start to see that life matters to other animals, it changes the equation a lot about what would seem morally permissible. How did this book influence how you think about food? I don't buy any meat from farm-raised animals, but the thing is everything dies. It, it's less important that we make them die than how we make them live, because many of them are made to live miserable existences that are not at all how their minds um, expect the world to be, You know, which means that they're always miserable and unhappy for the cramped period of their short lives before they are killed. So. I don't buy farmed animal meat. I, I essentially don't buy any dairy products. We have some chickens in the backyard that lay eggs. They're, they're very happy chickens. They roam around freely every day. Uh, I do live near the coast and I do go fishing. And I, uh, the, the fish that I catch and the clams that I dig make up a substantial part of my food supply. But part of the reason for that is well there are several reasons for that being outside being in nature and being involved in it means something to me in, in a way that i find a lot of resonance it's part of what drove me initially to work in conservation as a professional i don't want to be that divorced from the source of my own life i am a great fan of henry david thoreau and among his deep wisdom is uh, that line about why he went to that little cabin that he built for himself in the woods, which he says that he didn't want to feel when it came time to die that he had not lived. How we live, what kind of life and what relationships we construct for ourselves, what else is there in, in life really that matters other than trying to steer how we live? Do you kind of think back to that founding the Big Bang, that moment where there's an infinitesimally dense atom that created all space and time, how we all began as that, at that singular moment. The oneness is true at every scale of existence. So whether it's just you and your family or you and your family and your dog or all of the wild animals and the, the forests uh, or the coastline or the or the universe, it's still true that we are all literally related and, and literally all from the same beginning. I've been reading recently um, about more indigenous ways of seeing the, the world around them and sensing this oneness. They were perceived by human minds a long, long time ago. And, and that perception allowed people to live with the rest of life on earth and and our perception is incompatible with the existence of the rest of life on earth that's why we're in an extinction crisis it's why the chemistry of the atmosphere and, and the oceans is not only changing but is disrupting the ability 
for life to continue in those realms. Uh, it, it's why many of us are full of microplastics and toxic chemicals and things like that. Because our view of existence as being split up between us, the material world, the, the other living things, a deity, all of this fragmentation shows in, in how we live and what we are doing to the world itself. It's just very important for people to know that um, all around us is it just the incredible beauty of existence. There's a lot that remains. The sun comes up every day. There, there's beauty to be found everywhere. And it just makes life so much nicer and so much better and, and more full of joy. So while we ponder the imponderables and concern ourselves with the problems, I think that the, the crucial thing is that joy needs to be maintained and beauty needs to be experienced because that makes it all worthwhile. A huge thank you to Carl Safina for talking with Podshipper today. I feel both very grounded and at the same time saddened by our conversation. Our connection to all living things gives me a sense of belonging and comfort in an infinite universe. That living life is the purpose of life helps me focus on what I love. That the redwood tree outside my house will be there long after I'm not instills in me respect for a timeline that's beyond me. We've always known that animals feel and think and care, but we've been too afraid to confront that obvious reality because it puts into stark relief our shameful treatment of the natural world. Once we understand animals are our cousins, it makes their genocide even more painful. True equity needs to include a reckoning about how humans view themselves, both in relation to each other and in relation to all living things. As Carl so eloquently said, only through achieving dignity for all life will we be able to maintain a planet capable of supporting life for all. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, maybe take some time this week to think about your connections to the non-human world. 